straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. If you were listening to the last episode, you heard a conversation between myself and John Lamonto. In that episode, we discussed a theory of divine providence called Molinism. On Molinism, God is said to know the future-free actions of human persons. This theory says that God uses this knowledge to providentially arrange history. However, this theory is quite controversial. So in today's episode, John and I discuss different objections to Molinism. If you have questions or objections that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's John and I considering objections and answering questions. Enjoy. Excuse me, could you tell me what time it is? Oh, that's right. It's objection time. Objection time! All right, so John, on the last episode, you gave us uh, the sort of vague idea of what Molinism is, and now we need to look at some different objections to the view. So what are, what are some, of the, some of the problems for Molinism? Just like in broad outline, just what are a few of the problems that Molinism faces? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because like every site yeah, really blames Molinism here. I mean, you have like maybe the, the general open theist side and you have like the Calvinists on the other hand and uh, they both have conflicting problem with Molinism. One, uh, with the open theist, typically they like to say, oh, Molinism really doesn't work because God still has that control and like certainty over his creatures. That's not going to work because that still falls to determinism and that kind of thing. And you of like the Calvinist on the other hand and the Calvinist is like oh man you're just spewing off Pelagianism or like something mm-hmm. really bad like heretical view involving libertarian free will in 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 the sense that they think it means that 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 humans are able to choose God by their own will and like that it, it gives God too little uh, control over the creature. So they think that it gives God too little control while the open theists think that it gives God too much control. Yeah, so you've got these these like uh, Molinists, like they're sitting in this middle spot where they're just getting beat up on from both sides, right? So, okay, so yeah, so like the open theist is like, you've got this God is just way too much control. Is You're basically just a Calvinist. That's horrible. We all know that's horrible. And then on the other side, you've got the Calvinist going, oh gosh, you don't have a God with enough control. It's basically just Pelagianism. That's just awful. We all know that's horrible. So you've just got everybody just kind of beating up on these Molinists here. Yeah, and you have like the philosophers who sort of just sitting up there and looking down at like this uh, uh, battle. And um, Mm -hmm. the philosophers have very well, well, okay, they don't have very well constructed as of now, but um, they do have a problem that's maybe more technical than the theologians do. And that's usually called the grounding objection. And this is just a typical one. You know, you find this everywhere in terms of talk uh, philosophers talking about Molinism. They always bring up the grounding objection, which is really just in short the objection that that God cannot know uh, middle knowledge and all this stuff because, because, well, there is nothing that makes true these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So they, they focus on that sense of that there is nothing that makes true. I mean, when you think about this sort of uh, this 
counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, I'll just call them CCFs, following the tradition. These CCFs, mm -hmm. they were true prior to God uh, making them true, and they were true prior, temporally, to the agents actually doing the action, right? So it's like, so how do you, how, what, what makes them true? And they will say there is nothing that makes them true. And um, of course, they, they try to clarify this usually. Um, sometimes it's understood to mean uh, by, by virtue of uh, truth maker theory or sometimes by causal uh, style, some sort of causality. But, you know, we'll get to that later. But in, right. in, 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 in a nutshell, the philosopher has a, has a technical objection while sort of the Calvinists and the Armenians have theological objections. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following. So the two sorts of theological objections are you've given God way too much sovereignty or you've not given God enough sovereignty. And then you've got this philosophical objection, which just says the very idea of God knowing these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, that's just incoherent or that's just impossible. So the very idea of Molinism is just a non-starter because it, it just is incoherent. So those are the, the, the big kind of objections uh, as you understand it. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I guess I would just emphasize that the philosopher takes the objection from the side of their philosophy on the nature of truth. So, like, mm. it's impossible. It's incoherent because of my view of maybe, like, truth maker or, like, whatever right. it is that I think it makes true something, a proposition, you know. So, given certain theories of truth that we take to be pretty plausible, Molinism can't get up and running. Like, they just can't have truths for the things that they want God to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, that, 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 that's a good summary of it. Okay, so let's start with some more general objections here. So we've talked a bit about philosophy here, but sometimes people accuse Molinism of being a purely philosophical thesis that has no theological or biblical basis. So how would you respond to an objection like that? Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the things that Molinists have not been able to present very well is a clear methodology for Molinism. And I'm not going to say names here, but I think that sometimes it gets to the point where you try too hard to frame Molinism as a theological method. That is to say, from the Bible, we can find out everything about Molinism. Sure, and and right. I don't find it convincing, and I don't think it's going to be convincing to a lot of Calvinists, to be honest. That's just yeah, um, uh, biting their bullet. <laughs> That's biting their bullet, right? Yeah. So, or you can go on the extreme and say it has absolutely no biblical reference, and it's like just completely philosophical. You don't have to care about sort of the theological side of it. And I think that misses the theological benefits of Molinism, which is quite a lot. I mean, you can explain predestination and uh, the doctrine of inspiration and, and all the like. Um, you know, so you do have pretty strong uh, benefits for both theology and philosophy. And so I think that one of the way, and this is a possible method that, that Molinists can take, is to underline the methodology under something akin to analytic theology. So this is a possible method. This is to say that you can actually prove Molinism not solely on proofs based on philosophy or a biblical theology alone, but you try to use Molinism and as a, a way of explication. You know, um, you actually try to explicate from two different doctrines how you can make sense of them, and then you have Molinism. So I think it was in the introduction to the book Analytic Theology uh, by Oliver Christ, I think, or Michael Bree, I think, it was who put up the word explication. Yeah. And I really like that because I think that really uh, captures the sense in which Molinism is a biblical doctrine. We're not saying that from 
the Bible, biblical passages alone we get Molinism, but from the biblical passages we get certain concepts like uh, divine sovereignty and human free will. And from those, we try to make sense of them. And this making sense of them requires some uh, philosophical elaboration. It's like, you know, the analogy that's usually presented is in terms of like the Trinity. You can bring up the Trinity using biblical references like the deity of Christ and the deity of the Father. And, uh, or you can approach this a little differently by uh, trying to explain how it is coherent, which is quite a different feat. Because when you try to explain how it's coherent, you have to go extra biblical. And you know, and you go to maybe social Trinitarianism or Latin Trinitarianism, whatever it is, the way in which you prove the coherency of two biblical doctrines is in fact uh, one of the ways you can do analytic theology. And it it's not to say that that way of explication in itself is unbiblical. It's just to say that you try to prove two biblical concepts uh, using a model, and this model that you use is then the model that we deem biblical in the sense that they explain multiple biblical concepts. Right. So when I'm trying to do theology, like as an analytic theologian, I'm usually looking at, here's a bunch of different themes I see in scripture. So one of them being divine sovereignty, another one being God seems to know the future, another one predestination, another one, well, God seems to think I'm morally responsible for my actions. Otherwise, why would he want to punish me for my sins? Otherwise, why would he want me to ask for forgiveness and repent? You know, so, but there's no like clear metaphysical story of how that works just laying there in the biblical text and i I personally i think anybody who thinks they can like really dig out like the 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 absolute metaphysical story from the biblical text i think that that's just implausible so what i have to do then is i have to start coming up with metaphysical stories that are consistent with the text and so i want one that's internally coherent and I want one that also fits with what all the biblical claims are, are, are that are being made here. And so Molinism, like, I guess as you're saying, is like, well, that's an attempt to do that. It's an attempt to say, I can give you an account of sovereignty and I can give you an account of human freedom in this nice, neat, internally coherent package. You know, take it or leave it. If you don't like it, come up with another theory that's internally coherent and that fits with the biblical story in a nice, neat way. Like, go for it. But, but I guess, you know, the relevance of me bringing up the idea of methodology is usually, of course, the Calvinist objection that Molinism isn't taught in the Bible. Right. And here what I'm saying is that, um, you know, usually Calvinists accuse that the, the way in which we argue for Molinism is just by saying that Molinism is consistent with the Bible. But what I'm saying here is that it's more than just that it's consistent that it has explanatory power in reconciling various concepts. And so uh, that's just a little bit of uh, elaboration on how I see that uh, my understanding of Molinism as biblical. Right, yeah. I guess, I mean, I used to buy into this sort of Calvinist uh, objection here, but in the, the deeper I've studied of Calvinism, I, it's it's clear to me that it's not getting all of its ideas from Scripture as well. Like, I mean, sure, it makes a big deal about predestination, but, you know, so does Arminianism. So does Molinism. Uh, I mean, lots of views affirm some kind of predestination. There's no content there to what predestination is like in all these de- like robust details that the Calvinists give. It's just not there in the, in the biblical text. So I think uh, what a, a lot of Calvinists are doing, just like everybody else is, is they're going beyond what the biblical text says because you have to if you're trying to develop robust systematic doctrines. Like it's just what you have to do. So I, I guess I, if this is an objection against Molinism, that, hey, you're going beyond Scripture, then I think this is an objection to every single Christian theologian all across the board. Yeah, you, 
you, you should ask them how you, they derive hypostatic union or uh, the doctrine of the, their canon. <laughs> I'm right. just bringing up these kind of examples here. Exactly. Yeah. No. The early Christian doctrines. I mean, they are all using philosophical concepts that are that are we hope consistent with the biblical text, but they're not laying there on the text. We. This is something we just have to do in order to make sense of what's what's going on there. So yeah. So I. I, I that seems right to me in terms of dealing with that objection. So let's look at uh let's look at some more stuff here. So earlier you mentioned that some theologians complain that Molinism doesn't really give you enough sovereignty because it gives creatures way too much free will. But then on the other hand, you know, we had those other people who were complaining that it gives God too much sovereignty because it removes human free will. So what's your strategy for trying to avoid these these two sorts of objections? There was the method that I mentioned earlier about sort of like putting it in terms of uh, the methods of analytic theology. But I think, you know, it's also really good to, if you want to try to just get off the objection, so to say, is to try to present not just a methodology, but also a positive argument for Molinism. And, you know, I think there are sort of ways that we can do this. I mentioned earlier, you know, explanatory power, and this is how, um, you know, um, we avoid this kind of thing. Now, uh, there is also another one, and this is really famous, especially Thomas Flint references this a lot. And this is by Reductio. We, we try to prove that our viable positions of divine providence such as divine determinism or open theism really doesn't work so well and so sometimes it just we say that they lead to absurdities like we say that you know like a d divine determinism leads to god being the author of sin which means that god is the first cause of evil of all evil in the world and we think that it's, that's an absurdity because it leads to a compromise of uh, divine holiness or sometimes you can just try to make a weaker claim that it doesn't maintain the two positions that molinism wants to maintain as well like you know maybe open theists want to say we maintain free will and foreknowledge but really they don't maintain exhaustive foreknowledge you know and so it doesn't maintain them as well as Molinism does and I think this is sort of very apparent as an argument that it's intuitive that that Molinism gets what uh, the theists want if they want to achieve libertarian free will and and uh, sovereignty as well and I think there is also one a last way to argue about this is to prove that the opposite of libertarian free will, um, which is uh, compatibilism, if you apply that as a metaphysical theory of you know even God's own freedom, then it would lead to some sort of fatalism, perhaps you know in the sense that God has to will whatever is His desire that is outside of His own control. So this is sort of just a way of reductio, like we try to prove like from other positions, and that's how we usually try to get of uh, this objection. We try to show that other other views really don't work as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, if if you want to reject Molinism, here's other views and they don't really work either. So yeah, that's. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm understanding the strategy. So the first step in the strategy is to say, my theory can explain all of the biblical data that we have. All the biblical data about sovereignty, all of the biblical data about human free will, all of the biblical data about God's knowledge of the future. You know, so my theory, Molinism, it can give you all of that. So that's step one, because a Calvinist and an open theist might say, well, I can give you that too. And so you're like, okay, all right, well, I think mine still explains it better, but Okay, I'll grant you that. But what I want to show, though, is that, well, Calvinist, you've got some problems here. If you really do adopt this particular account of free will, oh, gosh, it really looks like God's the only person 
doing anything. It looks like God's the only one who has free will. And well, then God's going to be the author of evil. Because if God's the only one like doing anything, if he's the one who causes you to do the horrible things you do, well, then that means God's like the one doing the horrible things. So that's, oh gosh, that's not good. So, you know, uh, Calvinism, that's got to go. That's got to go. Uh, open theist over there. Yeah, you said you gave me um, all the things from scripture, but you got rid of foreknowledge, right? Um, God knows a few things about the future, but not as much as the Bible seems, right? So I actually, you know, I don't think you've given me the whole story here. So I, I've actually explained everything, uh, you know, and I don't have any of these weird uh, uh, problems like making God the author of evil. So that's, that's kind of the, is that sort of the basic strategy here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I like that. So, so let's. I want to look at this uh, this Calvinism one a bit more because I find this one interesting. So, the making God the author of evil. See if if I'm getting this right. So, a Calvinist is saying God determines everything that happens in some sense, and there's gonna they're gonna have a lot of nuance there to that. But the big idea is if God is the one who determines everything that happens, then He has to be responsible for the existence of evil in some sort of way. Uh, and then when you start looking at the different nuance that a Calvinist attaches to it, then you can start going, well, that's really not enough to get God off the hook for being like the author of evil. So is that is that like the, the big idea here? Yeah, well, to be fair to our Calvinist brethren, though, they may say that uh, given compatibilism, there is still secondary causation in the sense that uh, God creates evil only in the sense in which he permits creatures to do his decree of uh, making evil. But of course, you know, as much as I like to buy into this whole notion of secondary causation and that is somehow supposed to get God off the hook, I think the whole idea or the basic premise here is still that God is the first cause of evil. That is, before anything else, God created evil ex nihilo out of nothing. And so, um, the sense in which God is the first cause of evil, I think, is highly problematic uh, because it brings God to be not coerced, but it's something that he does willingly. And I think that that surely does bring up uh, a lot of issues with divine uh, holiness. Right, yeah, because if you've got God being the author of evil, then it's, it is a bit difficult to figure out in what sense God is really good and in what sense God is really holy. Uh, so John Calvin has this, this this phrase. I don't think I can get the quote just right, but but I think— but I, but I really like it. Uh, he says, we ought not to worship God unless we are certain that he is the source of all goodness or he's the fountain of all goodness. Uh, because the idea being like, if if I find out that God's not the, the fountain of all goodness, then I should not worship him. And so I think Calvin's right here. And so it seems like you could say, well, Calvin, I, I, I agree with you. I want to grant you that. We should only worship God if we know he's the source of goodness. But your account of predestination and providence, that kind of makes God not <laughs> really that great it makes him pretty awful so uh, god's not worthy of worship so so that seems like the idea do you think though that do you think maybe the calvinists though could push back a bit here at this point uh because i mean a molinist they're gonna they're gonna like the idea that god sometimes permits evil they're gonna have to have that typically in their theodicy it's certainly the case that on molinism god's the first cause in the sense that he's the first thing to cause anything to happen he causes a universe to exist and all these creatures to come into existence do you think maybe there's some room there for the Calvinists to kind of go, you're not too far away from me here on this point? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's usually the objection, right? Now, here it's interesting to also bring up the idea of 
the different types of mm. causation. Now, here is where I think it's interesting because, you know, of course, in philosophy here, we like to talk about sufficient causation and necessary causation. You know, I can necessarily, I can be a necessary cause for um, maybe, I don't know, uh, like my friends getting lunch in the sense that I pay some of the money for him to get his lunch, mm -hmm. right? Now, maybe I give him the money for his lunch and he goes on to buy his food. <laughs> Now, suppose that he buys something really unhealthy for himself, you know, and he gets really, really just sick and stuff like that, you know. Maybe uh, in that case, I can be called the necessary cause in the sense that if I weren't around to give him the money, he wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> right. But, um, of course, we can talk about sufficient causation. Was, he su was I sufficient myself to bring about that action? Or does it require uh, me and him... And I only contribute to one aspect of particular action. And so I think in this regards, the Calvinist can be right in saying that God does cre create creatures capable of moral evil. Now, of course, we can then begin to talk about theodicy in terms of whether or not it's justifiable for God to do so. But let's grant the premise for a second mm -hmm. that that's usually understood in theodicy that, um, you know, God has morally good reasons to create creatures capable of doing morally evil things. Now, we still have to say, in any case, that the sufficient cause of the creature's action in the sense of the creature bringing about that action that that is actually the creature so there is a sense in which we can say that then uh, God is only responsible for creating the morally agents capable of doing bad and good but the action of doing bad and good themselves they come from the agent by a libertarian free will. So this is the sense in which we talk about the differences in which the Calvinists, because in Calvinism, of course, the agents the agents really was determined by God and they couldn't have done differently, whereas in Molinism, uh, the agents really uh, could have done differently. You know, we're talking about Adam and Eve mm -hmm. where they could have done differently and followed what God had wanted, uh, which is moral good. <laughs> Right. Okay. So it seems like the situation is this. So a Calvinist, a Molinist, and an open theist walk into a bar and, oh wait, there's no joke there. Um, <laughs> no. So it seems the situation seems this. Like, so you've got these Calvinists, you've got these Molinists, and you've got these open theists, and they all agree that God is a necessary uh, cause, I guess, for all the things that happen in the universe. Because he's the thing that creates everything to exist, and he's the thing that keeps everything in existence. He's sustaining everything in existence. So that's sort of like the necessary cause, I guess, for any action that an agent might perform. But uh, but a Molinist and an open theist are going to say, right, but God's only causing me to exist and to have the ability to perform actions. God's not causing my actions. So uh, a Molinist and, a, and an open theist can say, it's up to me which action I perform. So God's the sort of necessary condition for me to be able to perform actions, but what I do, that's that's up to me. So I'm the sufficient cause for it. Whereas a Calvinist, they're going to be like, well, actually, uh, God's going to be causing a lot more stuff. And so and so that, well, actually, that's going to, you're saying like, well, that's 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 the part where the Calvinist is putting God on the hook, making God the author of evil. Is that is that sort of accurate, you think? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's accurate. And maybe if you want to, you know, talk about like other metaphysics, you know, sure. maybe in Aristotelian terms, you can talk about like efficient causation, you know, or like um, maybe you can talk about the agents being a first cause. In any sense, whatever sense it is, we're talking about an agent causation. We're talking about the agent acting as a moral agent to perform something. And in the case of the Molinus, God performs by his agency only the creatures' existence, whereas in Calvinism, it is the secondary agency's actions, like my doing evil mm -hmm. and all the stuff, that that's actually God using his agency to perform that. So I'm just talking maybe in a more for informal sense here, but that's really the, the, the essence, the idea we're trying to capture here of uh, the differences between the two. Right, no, that's good. I think that gives you a basic strategy for how these sort of arguments would go, these sort of debates would go, because each of you is going to want to nuance things in order to try to respond, but this is the basic framework for the debate. So, okay, so that I think that's really helpful. Um, but uh, so let's go back to one of the other objections we, you mentioned earlier. So we've looked at some theological objections now. So let's look at uh, the philosophical objection, which is what's called the grounding objection. And I mean, like personally, this is the one that really bothers me the most. This is what makes me uncertain in my Molinism is this grounding objection. So so how would you respond? So like, like, I guess first let's lay out what the grounding objection is. And then I want to know how you would you respond to it? Okay, so you want to lay it out, or do you want me to lay it out? <laughs> uh, I, I'll try to lay it out the best as I can. So one of the assumptions here is this idea of what's called truth supervenes on being. That if I have a statement like the grass is green, like that proposition, what makes it true is that there is actual this stuff called grass. It actually has you know some property like being green, and so that's what makes it true. Uh, and, and so I have to look at all the different propositions that I, that I want to say are true, and I have to find truth makers or things that uh, make them true that exist out there in the world, things that actually exist in the world that make them true. And when I come to things that the Molinist wants to grant, that God knows what I would do in any possible circumstance, well, the objection says, well, you can't know that because what makes that true? What makes it true that if Ryan were to go to McDonald's today, he'd order a double cheeseburger, you know? It's not just because God knows that Ryan loves uh, cheeseburgers, because Ryan doesn't even exist before God creates creates me. So there's there's no Ryan there to ground that truth. Uh, there's nothing there for the truth to supervene on. So, so that's, as I understand it, that's kind of the big idea in the grounding objection. I know there's different versions of it, there's different ways to lay it out, but that's, that's the, the basic idea from what I understand. There's nothing that makes these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom true. Yeah, you have outlined one major one, actually. Mm -hmm. So that's actually one major camp. And let me just say right at the beginning that no one in the major literature, at the very least, has actually um, been able to come up with an objection that's based on truth maker. At the very least, um, the truth maker grounding objection is more actually the Molinists putting objections in the mouth of right. anti-Molinists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not so much like people, these anti-Molinists coming up with boldly and saying, truth maker theory and yeah. uh, the Molinists saying, uh -huh, okay, we have good strategies, but it's more like the Molinists are the ones saying, trying to capture the intuition of the anti-Molinists. But suffice it to say, I think it's worth responding to because the, the objection here is that, you know, you have truth supervenes 
on being. But let me qualify that for a second because um, there's a difference between truth supervenes on being and the truth maker theory right. originally yeah. in terms of what David Armstrong would have talked about. So David Armstrong would have talked about in terms of uh, entities that exist in virtue of a proposition being true. So like the car exists is made true because there are cars. <laughs> so that's, mm-hmm. that's simple enough. Or grass is green because the grass uh, in the world is green. <laughs> so that's another way we, we talk about it. Well, whereas in Molinism, we have this kind of factuals, but sort of what are um, the things that in virtue of these propositions are true? And usually the Molinist response is to try to deny uh, the um, assumption of uh, truth-making here because we try to point out to propositions like there exists no dinosaur and we say well, what, what exists in virtue of for that proposition to be true well it's a proposition about the non-existence of something right, right? so that's an example where sir, the principle doesn't work there but another you know famous one is by Alfred Fredoso where he brings up about the future and the past right Let's suppose for a moment that a theory of time is true and all the like. And so I'm very happy with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, given that a theory of time is uh, assumed, then the past has didn't uh, do not exist uh, doesn't exist anymore, but we still say the past is true. Mm-hmm. So in virtue of what is the past true? And likewise, you have uh, the future. Um, and, and this is the brilliant sort of counter example here because the future also doesn't exist in the same way that the present does exist. But what is in virtue of the propositions about the future that make them true? Well, Alfred Fredoso suggests the reasoning that they are true because they will be. So, for example, I will mount the lawn, so I don't have a lawn, but mm-hmm. if that proposition is true because at the time mentioned in that proposition, I will actually mount the lawn. So that's an example where the use of temporal logic is being used in terms of parallel between the future and the past and kind of factuals. Okay, so uh, yeah, so let me see if I'm following here. So one strategy to try to get out of this this sort of grounding objection is to say, look, there's lots of truths that we admit are true, but they don't have anything to ground them anymore. So maybe there's something wrong with the the grounding objection or the very idea of truth maker theory. So one of the examples is, uh, you know, unicorns do not exist. There's no thing in the world that makes that true, but yet we, I know for certain that's true. So something's got to be wrong with the truth maker theory. Uh, and then other examples being, well, things about the past and the future. Like I know that uh, you know Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Is Abraham Lincoln still alive to ground that truth? No, no, but it, it's true. I mean, come on. Uh, and so then the idea is, well, okay, I know that truth maker theory doesn't work for these other kinds of propositions that I know are true. Well, maybe it doesn't work for the sort of things that I, as a Molinist, want. Is that is that sort of the big idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a big idea. Okay, so I guess I want to get into a little bit more detail here. So, I, like, I'm a presentist, so I want to say the present is the only moment of time that exists. And so, I do like this move that Ferdoso is making, where he's saying, "Well, look, you don't, you know, you're happy to say there's all these truths about the past, even though there's nothing there to ground them anymore. Well, you know, so why not apply it to truths about the future?" I have this worry that it doesn't quite work. So when I look at uh, the past 
it at least was the was the case that there was at one point in time something that made that proposition true. So it might be the case that once a proposition is made true, you don't need anything to continue to make it true anymore. Whereas I can't do that with the future because there's this sort of asymmetry between the past and the future. The future is stuff that did happen, whereas the the future, like I mean, I'm sorry, the past is stuff that did happen. The future is stuff that has not happened, and and so it seems like it's at least causally open. Uh, like the, like there's still things that could make it true. Whereas the past, you know, it's settled, it's done. Like, you know, there's nothing that you could do to change it or make any of those things true or false now. And so I don't know if the, I guess I'm worried that Fredoso's move doesn't quite work in the way that he wants it to. I can see where you're coming from, though, because you're saying that the future is is at least going to happen, whereas a lot of counterfactuals are not going to be realized, so to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I have to admit one thing. And one thing that I will admit here is that Molinus really do not have an explanation for these counterfactuals. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because usually this type of objection is intertwined with asking for explanation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, uh, Joshua Rasmussen and Alex Proust argues that it's just because we don't know the explanation of libertarian free will that we likewise do not have an explanation for counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So with regards tying it back, though, to what you were saying earlier, when we talk about the future and what is going to happen and likewise counterfactuals and what is going to happen in counterfactuals, one strategy to uh, escape this objection is first to say that it does happen in one possible world and God mm. knows it that it happens in one possible world. And so even if it's not going to happen in the future, in this possible world, it's going to happen in another possible world. Now that may not be convincing. That's okay. Another strategy is to talk about abstract entities within God's mind. So Again, what I'm saying, all the strategies I'm outlining right now are not explanations right. for counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. They're not explaining why, why they are true, but they're simply outlining a truth maker for them. So one truth maker is, of course, this uh, pos another possible world. Another truth maker is the abstract entities. And I think the third one, well, okay, I don't have a third one, actually. Sure, that's right. <laughs> I think those two are the ones that, that's usually outlined would be uh, abstract entities or just uh, plain states of affairs, usually modal state of affairs, which are state of affairs about other possible worlds. Okay, so let's see here if I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So one of the one of the ways to try to defeat truthmaker theory or at least satisfy truthmaker theory, depending on how you want to go, is to start specifying what the truthmakers are and the sort of stuff that philosophers allow to count as truthmakers, I mean, it's it's pretty wild. They'll allow all sorts of things to count as truthmakers, like abstract objects. So the Molinist should be able to say, right, if you're going to allow all these like uh, all these different abstract objects, like possible worlds or ideas in the mind of God, if you're going to allow all those things to count as truthmakers for everything else, why would you not allow it to count as a truthmaker for these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom? You know, like, I mean, like, come on here. Like, if you're going to look right at it over here, definitely give it to me. Or, you know, one, one last comment from me on this, mm -hmm. though, is there is um, an, an interesting work ref referring to truth maker to dispositional theories. Ah, so right. here is an example. So David Armstrong brings this example of, well, actually, this is not from him, but this is from basically the study of uh, disposition in general. Is that suppose uh, there's a class and I... I'm about to throw a ball to it. And then in my mind, I say, if I throw this ball, the glass will break. Now, 
that counterfactual is grounded in something, possibly. Well, it's a dispositional counterfactual based on the property of the class. It may be because of the molecular structure of the class and all the like. Or, fundamentally, it is also because of the laws of nature. So you have laws of nature that are uh, counterfactuals in and of themselves, and you have the molecular structure of the class, and both of them become the truth makers jointly for counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. So William Lane Craig points out that possibly this can also be a method in which we justify the truth of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom by saying that uh, there are fundamental laws of uh, as there as as there are fundamental laws of nature that govern our ways of thinking about the way how counterfactual dispositional right. uh, properties work. Likewise, then we can say that there are fundamental counterfactuals of creaturely freedom that abide in the same way like laws of nature do mm -hmm. um, that actually justify uh, how there are laws of what agents will do in different scenarios. So, to say. so I've got a nice, neat metaphysical story that I can tell uh, based on the laws of nature for counterfactuals uh, with regards to the laws of nature. Well, why can't I apply that to the Molinist case? Because it seems like it works really over here, and I can definitely make it apply over to the Molinist case. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, laws of nature are true prior to um, any of the events described in the laws of nature happen, and they were true before uh, possibly the existence of the universe, or oh, maybe just our planet, perhaps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they described uh, very well about what would occur. And so I, I think that's a that's one counterexample that may defeat uh, sort of this whole objection. All right. Well, thank you. That's That's really fascinating stuff. Thank you for coming on the show today. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on God, DNA, human nature, art, and so much more.